several months ago, I was sitting on my front porch at night uh, with a friend of mine who's also an elder here at Christ City named Jim Allman. And in my memory, he's smoking a pipe, but he's always smoking a pipe in my memory. And you know what I mean if you know Jim Allman. So uh, we were talking, and we, we, you know, we talk, we, we throw around, you know, philosophy and all politics and religion. That's just what we like to talk about. Becky, my wife, will say, so how, how are Jim's kids doing, and how's his wife? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but I can, I can tell you what he thinks about how Aristotle, you know, relates to this modern problem we're dealing with. But uh, so we were talking, and... Uh, I, I can't remember how we got there, but at one point I said, yeah, I was responding to something he said, and I said, yeah, I've contemplated oblivion. And he was like, what? I said, yeah, I've, I've, con- I've contemplated non-existence. Uh, and, and in my memory, he stops smoking his pipe and looks at me. I don't know if that's really what happened or not. And uh, so it gave him pause, though. And uh, I don't know if it was because I'm, I'm a pastor at, at the church that he attends or um, because we both have a certain idea and framework that we're operating from that gave him pause. But that idea of contemplating what happens after breath leaves your body, after your heart stops pumping blood and you no longer move, and your brain activity ceases. It's a question that the Bible is very interested in, and that people in general are interested in, and are always trying to understand more about. And that's a lot of what this passage is dealing with here, where Paul is writing to a church in a city called Corinth, and some folks have rolled into this church that he planted, and then he left and went to do other work. These really shiny, pretty, wealthy folks have rolled in, and they've started teaching people uh, different things than what Paul taught them. And one of them was about this question of what happens to us when we die, when our physical life ceases. And what they were talking about was really similar, we think, to kind of what most of us in our subconscious believe right now, which is we die and then our soul kinds of floats up to heaven and we have sort of this uh, disembodied experience in some kind of heavenly afterlife type of situation. When you hear people talk about those loved ones that have passed on or, or, or contemplating their own death, this is usually the type of idea that comes up, and it can be really comforting for some people because it's, it's so normalized, but there's also a lot of tragedy to the way of thinking that goes along with it, and it's not really, it's not really consistent with the way we see uh, life after death talked about in the scriptures as a whole. So, what I want us to do is kind of look at these, these scriptures and talk about really the supremacy or the, the necessity, I should say, of the physicalness of human beings and how that's tied to our spirituality and how important that is for how we see the world. So 
when we look at these first few verses, it says, it is written, I believed, therefore I have, I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All, all this is for your benefit so that the grace is reaching more and more people may cause, the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Um, so what we see here in this passage is actually a connection to how we see life after death embodied in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what's important about what Paul is saying here, one of the things that's important for our discussion this morning, is that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, that the disciples encountered his body, that they felt wounds in his hand and in his side, and he was recognizable and somehow unrecognizable in the same way. And when this is rightly weighed and understood, it can have incredibly powerful and important implications for our life. But when we uh, sort of regurgitate in our minds and on our hearts this idea of the separateness of the spirituality and physicality, we get horribly tragic things, horribly tragic outcomes when those things are pulled apart from each other. And we don't have to look far at all in our history to do that. There is a, a, a theologian and maybe sociologist too might fit her, contemplative writer named Barbara A. Holmes, and she writes a lot about these relationships and connections in a book called Race and the Cosmos. And I want to share with you just a little excerpt from this book about how this has affected the past and how we saw uh, some things around race. So she says this, in the area of race relations, both theology and science have failed us. History reminds us that theologians found biblical warrant for the oppression of African slaves and justification for the perpetuation of the institution of slavery. Conversion efforts had multiple aims, so conversion to Christianity. It was presumed by slave masters that the Christian faith would encourage slaves to acquiesce and accept their fate. The promise of freedom in the by and by relieved owners of the need to redress grievous human rights violations in the here and the now. Along with the obvious example of Christianity and slavery, there were other things that ran concurrent with that in science, as she mentioned earlier, pseudosciences where uh, there were fictional mental diseases dis uh, ascribed to slaves that tried to escape. There were uh, experiments called eugenics, which were a pseudoscience way of measuring the intelligence of people based on the size of their skulls, uh, intentionally giving uh, black males um, syphilis to watch what happened to them over a period of 40 years. Um, and this was also, these types of things were also rooted in a theology of that black people were the descendants of Ham, which was a cursed son of Abraham. And a lot of these things were held and suspended in the common uh, 
a consciousness of white Americans because there was such strong theological weaving ways of thinking and absolving a person's conscience of what matters here in the physical is somehow not directly related or connected to the spiritual. Okay? So what happens in the here and now, as long as we convert someone to Christianity, it doesn't matter the hardships and the trials of their life now, because in eternity, what they'll have is good things with God, and somehow those things are not connected. But the bodily resurrection of Jesus is an event that took place that shows us a different type of connection and relationship in our faith. Here, here's why we want to disconnect these things. Here's why I feel like it's important to talk about this with this scripture where Paul says that our light and momentary afflictions are not, are not much compared to this weight of glory. Here's why I was afraid to not talk about this with this passage. Because when we see and think in this way that the spiritual and the physical are, are so separate, if we are people of comfort and privilege, it easily allows us to think, well, the suffering of other people is temporary, and if they just get some Jesus, then they'll be okay in eternity. And so what happens is we sort of uh, can tend to farm out that idea when it has to do with other people's suffering because we're living a relative life of material comfort. Um, I saw uh, on this Instagram channel, it's like a, it's, it's like a, uh, uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's like Brightside or something. That's the name of it. And it just tells you like good stories about like a guy feeding a baby duck water and, you know, cute little things like that. And I love, I love this channel. Uh, and, and it showed a picture of, I think, one of the, the Kardashian clan. It was like a, a, the Kylie Jenners, maybe. And it was like her yearbook picture. And she looked so pretty and, and put together. And she said, it's, she had a quote and it said, nobody needs anything just be kind to everyone. And I'm like, of course that's what you would say. Nobody needs anything. Because you don't need anything. You've got so much wealth. You have everything you need. And there's this level of comfort that can, along with other ideas flowing in the current of our culture, that can allow us to say, well, the suffering of other people really isn't that big of a deal because eternity is coming, and then they'll have a chance to have something good then. It's dangerous. It has caused and wreaked havoc along with other ideas that supported and buttressed in, uh, that idea. But Jesus says something very different. In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the persecuted, he talks about the suffering of people as something that inside is hidden, something powerful about the kingdom of heaven that he said was here and now. And that makes me think that maybe these things have been interpreted improperly. There's even this story uh, that sort of conflicts. It, it conflicts with a lot of these narratives where Jesus tells this story 
uh, it's a parable of a rich man and a poor man, and the man's named Lazarus. And Lazarus lives on the ground outside the gates of the rich man's compound, and he's covered in sores, and he's a beggar, and he has nothing. And then there's a rich man right inside who ignores him, and they both die. And uh, after they die, Lazarus goes to the good place, and Lazarus, I mean, uh, the rich man goes to the bad place, and Lazarus goes to the good place. And there's a conversation happening. Uh, Lazarus is with Abraham, and uh, the, the rich man is in a place of, of torment and suffering. And he's, he's first, he's asking Lazarus to come and give him something to drink because it's hot where he is. And Abraham's like, hey, man, Lazarus can't come and be your servant yet again. Um, there's a big chasm in between you and him. And there's no way to go back and forth for anybody. And, uh, and, then, and then the rich man, he thinks, okay, well, if I can't, if I can't do anything about my state, then I'm, I'm going to at least say, hey, can you go warn? I have brothers. Can you warn my brothers? And uh, Abraham says, look, your brothers have the prophets and Moses to listen to. And the rich man says, no, that won't work. If you go back and tell him, if somebody who's already died and been here goes back and tells them what's, what's, it, what's it like here for those of us who neglected the physical needs of other people, who saw them as insignificant and not worth our time and attention. And Abraham responds sadly, even if a man was to be raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe So, even in this passage here, we see in this, in this Second Corinthians passage, we see over and over this physicality being brought out, the importance of how we treat this physical world and its relationship to the spiritual. 2 Corinthians 4.14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. If Christianity is to be transformative, it is to be transformative in the here and the now. That is not separate than the by and by. Jesus said, I came to offer life and life in abundance here and now. So it, so it would make sense. If something is, for me, I'm a person of faith, but I'm also, I'm also a person of observation. And so if somebody shares an idea with me that sounds completely just like you just made that up yesterday, I'm not going to be keen on just pulling that into my way of understanding. And what's so attractive to me about Jesus, what has kept me in the bosom of Christ and in the church, is not the by and by. It's the here and now. It's the life and life abundantly here and now. That's what gives me my faith, my belief in the goodness 
and the true nature of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the image of the invisible God. So, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this, uh, this unseen idea here, starting in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, have, have um, Have you ever tried to convince somebody that if they, if they went through something that sucked, there would be something really good at the end, but you couldn't prove it to them? Like, hey, no, I promise, on season three on this Netflix show, you just got to wait it out, right? You just got to wait till season three, and it'll, it'll be worth it, I promise. Or, hey, look, I know I've been a terrible boyfriend for two years, but I promise. Just give me a few more months. I, you, you, it'll, be nothing, it'll be nothing like you've ever experienced. I'll, I'll be the best, right? So these are these, are these same sort of ideas of, of even uh, going back to American slavery, right? Um, if you just wait it out, and that's what I feel like Paul is trying to have to convince the Corinthians of right here. Like, I can't necessarily prove it to you. I'm going to try, but... Um, it's going to get really good uh, in, in a minute here. And for me, when, when, I, um, when I, as an adult, um, came into this new understanding of grace, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I wasn't worried about any of those things. I just needed grace. And grace was a supernaturally powerful and attractive thing to me. And it changed me. It transformed my whole life. Is believing and understanding that Jesus was my Savior. It changed me dramatically. And over time, what I found is that the grace that I had been given needed to be distributed and understood in more wise ways than how I first encountered it. It was good for me then, but as I grew, I needed some more wisdom to go with it, which is just what life is like, right? As you get further along in life, you need to acquire more wisdom as life becomes more complicated. And so I I developed a lot of questions, and as I studied the scriptures more and I saw the uh, different beliefs and attitudes towards the physical and the spiritual, um, it it just gave me a lot of conflicting thoughts and feelings and ideas about this, Um, especially especially in light of this um, idea of the afterlife that seems so curated to an affluent American lifestyle. It's so different from what Paul says when he says earlier in, in chapter 4, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. 
So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So this idea of the suffering here and now, uh, this light and momentary thing for this huge weighted glory, for me, that's some heavy lifting. And um, so basically what it came down to is I said, where can I see the evidence of this idea in my life, in my faith, in the tangible and physical? Because what I understand about Jesus, the teachings, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is that any idea that's for after seemed to be manifest in his life in the here and now. And so this this led me to an interesting place recently. There's a lot of different places it's led me, but here's where it led me to recently. I started to think about that um, not in modern neuroscience, in Western science, there is a debate based on a lot of different evidence about the brain. And one of the ideas is from a group of scientists called materialists. And materialists believe that the physical material world is all that there is, that any and everything is located and can be explained in the material. And uh, so your heart, your soul, all those things are only and forever just a material thing. And so when you die, uh, that's it, right? And what I found, though, is there's this movement in neuroscience, specifically neuroscience and biology. You get out of that field, and there's all kinds of ideas about this. But there are people that are called dualists, scientists that are called dualists. And what they have determined from research and experiments is that the brain and the mind are two separate things. That the mind is an intangible, and I would say, in my words, spiritual way of interacting with our brains and our bodies. In fact, there's this guy, we got a picture of him, his name's Wilder Penfield. He's a neurosurgeon from the University of Montreal in Canada, and he was working in the mid-20th century for several decades as a, uh, as a, a, a neuroscientist and neurosurgeon. And he worked primarily on people who had epilepsy, and, uh, and they had, they had a, you know, uncontrollable epilepsy, just seizures all the time, to the point where what they wanted to do to deal with the epilepsy was see if they could cut out the part of the brain that caused the epilepsy. And of course, you could see how this might relate to if we are only our material selves, how this could greatly impact how you think about these things and literally how the patients are able to think. So he did surgery on over a thousand patients, brain surgery, cutting out pieces of their brain, people who had epilepsy. He removed the parts of the brain causing seizures. And interestingly enough, when you do brain surgery, as you do, um, there are no pain centers in the brain, which means that the brain, it receives pain signals, but it doesn't have pain signals in it. 
And so you can cut somebody's brain and they won't feel anything. It won't hurt. They'll, they might feel something, but it won't hurt. Um, and so the reason why I needed to do this with epileptic seizures, people, people who had that, is to find out by putting little tiny electrodes in different spots on their brain to see where that spot might be that caused those reactions that were harmful or hurting them. And so he started to do these experiments, and um, he ended up concluding that there is something in a human being that is immaterial, that actually helps to govern the activity of the physical brain, the mind, the intellect of a human being, the will of a human being. And the way that he moved from being a materialist to a dualist was for three reasons. The first reason is as he was shocking people's brains with electrodes, they never had, he never uh, caused an abstract thought to occur. So um, never in a, upwards of a thousand surgeries and hundreds of thousands of shocks did he, was he ever able to make the brain produce an abstract thought, like something about mathematics or a philosophical idea. None of that ever came out. None of that ever happened. So the obvious explanation is that abstract thought doesn't come from the brain. That's what he concluded. The second reason is that people have different kinds of seizures. They go unconscious or they have focal seizures with twitching and tingling. But nobody ever had a calculus seizure. He, nobody ever like had a seizure and they just started spouting off intellectual ideas before. Ever. And so he said, why is that? If arithmetic and logic and all that abstract thought come from the brain, every once in a while you ought to get a seizure that makes it happen. So he asked rhetorically why there are no intellectual seizures. <laughs> I'd like to put that on a shirt. His answer was, because the intellect doesn't come from the brain. And the third reason was the will of the person. Patients always knew that when he stimulated their arm, it was him doing it and not them. He could never trick them. He could never convince them it was them when they moved their arm, when it was actually him with an electrode. Isn't that fascinating? So if the brain was actually the only thing responsible for the movement, there would be no way for the patient to tell whether it was him doing the electrode or some invisible force, the mind, who is actually doing the heavy lifting to make the arm go up. So what he determined after he realized he could never stimulate an abstract thought and no intellectual thoughts were produced in seizures and that there was an inability to stimulate the will of the human being, he concluded that the intellect and the will are not from the brain. So, he's a dualist. That there is an intangible force that is part of the will and the intellect of a human being. And many others, well, many of them also Nobel Peace Prize winners, agree with him. Uh, there was a my neighbor who was talking, she's, she's, she's an interesting person. And in about two seconds, she started talking about artificial intelligence and how there were going to be robots mocking, walking among us. What's actually true is that if you could give a computer unlimited resources for AI, it still couldn't produce the will, the creative imagination, the spiritual force of a human being. 
We dream about the future. We dream about things that last, that are eternal. We think about the world beyond what's in front of us and around us. And those things are working with our physicality, but they are not one and the same. They're intertwined. Daniel J. Siegel, who is a Harvard Medical School graduate and a clinical professor of psychiatry, says, findings from science now confirm the notion that the mind can activate the brain's circuitry in ways that change the brain's structural connections. In other words, you can use the subjective inner aspect of reality to alter the objective physical structure of the brain. So it seems what Paul is saying can actually be observed in neuroscience, in psychology, in the things that sort of get into our brains in subconscious sort of ways. And this is really interesting to me and it makes sense to me that we could look at the observable world and see this spiritual life that Christ and the writers of the New Testament are talking about. Paul says that these are light and momentary troubles and that they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And it reminds me of something that uh, a guy named Chip Dottie, simply this is how he defines passion. That passion is when you're willing to go through pain for something that's greater than the pain. That there is this, there is this weight, there is this eternalness, this glory, this thing beyond the physical that we are attached to, that makes us, us. In verse, uh, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, the last verse, Paul says this, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And so, you know, these questions uh, that come up when we start talking about the, the spiritual and the physical, the immaterial and the material, we don't find just like some really neat and tidy answers uh, in, the, in the scriptures we see some questions being posed, some answers being given in some ways and not others. And as we, as we consider this idea, this idea that this bodily resurrection of Christ is, is central to our faith, to Christianity, as we consider the ideas that we are as well more than our physical selves, as we consider the ideas that um, in the scriptures there is not the concept that our soul is going to leave and somehow everything physically happening now is inconsequential. We consider th these questions, like who will you be in light of eternity? As we think about Lazarus and the rich man, as we think about the, the Beatitudes, as we think about the proper application of the momentary suffering, the suffering that we're willing to go through, not others, 
Not to, not to excuse it for others to have to go through the suffering, but for us. What passion do we have around these ideas, the interconnectedness of human beings, of our spirit and our flesh? Who will you be in light of eternity? What will you be? Here's, here's what I'm convinced of, that the invisible will continue to make physical contact. So, I know, uh, I know that is not the way you usually would end a sermon. Um, but I think it gives us a good foundation for thinking about some of the ideas of how the physical world and the intangible, immaterial, spiritual world relate. And we're going to continue to explore those ideas, looking at more specific spots as we continue on. So let's get ready to pray and come to the table where we make physical contact with our Savior through communion. So, Lord, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for this world that you've placed us in. The bodies you've given us, our minds, our souls. We thank you that all of these things have weight and consequence. Uh, would you meet us here? Amen.